If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Isabel Wilkerson. I spoke to Isabel about her new book, Cast, The Lies That Divide Us, for the October issue of BBC History Magazine. In the book, Isabel argues that the divisions in American society are best understood if you view it as a caste system. 
and draws comparisons with India and Nazi Germany. Your new book argues that American society and the history of that society is best understood if we view it as a caste system. So to start us off before we go any further, how do you define caste and why do you think that it's a useful way of describing the divisions that are in American society? Well, I describe caste as an arbitrary, uh, artificial hierarchy in which in the American context, what people uh, have historically been permitted to do, uh, what they have been able to do in terms of occupation and uh, in terms of life chances have often been related to and dependent upon what they look like. And I distinguish caste from race in that caste is uh, as a concept that is thousands of years old. And race is a fairly new concept in human history. It dates back to the era of the transatlantic slave trade. And so before the era of the transatlantic slave trade, there was not really this, what we have as the popular current notion of race. It grew out of the Uh, desire to categorize people in the new world in order to build a new world. And so there was this need for tremendous labor to tame the land. And uh, the people who were brought in to do that work were uh, Africans who were brought across the Atlantic uh, by those who were colonizing uh, 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 North America. And uh, they were brought in specifically to do the the work of building uh, that society and, and building the uh, the uh, infrastructure uh, and to build the agricultural needs that would then be commodities for the rest of the for the economy to build on. And so that was the beginning of a caste system in which you might say race was the signal or cue. It was created as a signal or cue to determine where one would be in the caste system. You also use um, comparisons in the book. So you look at the caste systems of India and Nazi Germany. First of all, um, in systems such as those where they're not delineated by, caste isn't delineated by race in the same way it is in the USA, how does caste present itself in those societies when it's not only identified by skin colour? Well, that was one of the uh, fascinating aspects of this work, which is why I chose these, the, you know, the, these other two examples. And that was because I found that, the, that these hierarchies used very similar means of first identifying who could be in the dominant caste, of of surveilling and policing those who were deemed as not being in the dominant caste, those who were deemed as being subordinate caste, and of uh, enforcement of the caste system overall. Um, there were I, I described them in, in terms of pillars. I, I identify eight pillars that are consistent throughout all of these hierarchies. And so uh, while they had different means of, of delineating and identifying who would be where in the caste system, the methods and means of maintaining the caste system were, were, were um, actually shockingly similar, uh, meaning the general impulse, I should say, to, uh, to the, the need to dehumanize the people in order to make uh, 
to make those who were who might have questioned other, otherwise might have questioned it to make them feel as if this was a natural order of things. Dehumanization was a was one of the characteristics that, that's common throughout uh, a hierarchy such as these. Uh, the the uh, does the idea of purity, the purity of the dominant group versus the pollution that would accrue from the dominant group being exposed to or interacting with those who are viewed as being subordinate. These are all characteristics that are similar uh, throughout these these hierarchies. And so I found that while the the means, like I said, the means of delineation might have been different, the the uh, the effort to maintain them and the ways of maintaining them had similarities, more similar, more similarities than we might otherwise imagine. As well as those similarities, as you acknowledge there, there, there are crucial differences. Do you think? What do you think's illuminating about some of those differences, as well as the similarities? That's a really good question. Um, I think that. What's illuminating about the differences is actually how arbitrary they all are, because the fact that they all use different metrics to determine who is accorded the role of being dominant or recorded, accorded the role of being subordinate are all arbitrary. It's actually proof of the um, of the in some, in some ways tragic nature of a hierarchy such as formal hierarchies such as these. Um, that their differences actually affirm the tragedy of caste itself. Um, I think something that's really interesting in your book is you highlight that arbitrariness very intensely and you you kind of give an example of, imagine if all the short people in the world decided that all the tall people were inferior. Where do you think that, um, if we talk about the US in particular, the origins of the decision that certain people were dominant and so certain people were subordinate where does that originate from that is you know getting to the heart of of this work I'm, I've sought to do and um, there are many ways that you could look at it I mean one of them has to do with what is the most what is the most immediately re- readily available means of dis- of distinguishing one person from another. You know, before there was a transatlantic slave trade, there had been exposure that some Europeans had had, you know, the explorers had had um, in uh, the the 1500s, for example, but there had not, it hadn't had meaning. They might um, uh, encounter Ethiopians. They made their way to India. Um, Of course, colonization occurred uh, ultimately in some of these places, but before contact, there had been no need necessarily to say one was better than the other. They were just different. When it came to trying to build this new world, there was an imperative. And the imperative meant that finding a way that's a readily available way of distinguishing one person, one entire group of people from another, became skin color. Um, In the United States, of course, there had been an attempt to enslave Native Americans um, the brutality against Native Americans is is almost beyond comprehension. You know, they came and took the land, and then uh, drove the people from the land, and then sought to to enslave them. And the Native Americans had the advantage of being able of knowing the land. This was where this was their land, and so they they had ways of fighting back. They had ways of being able to uh, to find. Um, 
retreat and find places of, of safety um, because they knew the land actually better than the people who were arriving to colonize them. Africans who were brought to, uh, to the United States in the transatlantic slave trade had none of those um, none of those what might be viewed as advantages of being able to find one's way through the through the through one's own land. They were arriving to an alien land. They had been stripped of their uh, stripped of their connections to family. Um, they were many, many multiples of people. They were not one people. They were many, many, many different um, nations and, and, and groups of, and ethnicities. And so they didn't uh, speak the language. They didn't all speak a common language. So it was uh, a perfect storm of being able to take advantage of the dislocation and brutality that occurred as a result of, of enslavement. So it was a perfect storm of circumstances that made this particular group especially um, uh, vulnerable to uh, to labeling, to isolation, and to uh, ultimately to uh, the kind of of brutality that 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 they met with enslavement. So uh, that was it was it was a it was a pragmatic. Uh, a cruelly pragmatic move on the part of the of the colon, uh, colonists to take this one group of people and designate them at, as being at the very bottom of, of a still emerging hierarchy. And I should preface that, preface that by saying that, um, of course, in the beginning, uh, there were indentured servants who were brought over who were um, English or who were uh, uh, Irish and, and, and other uh, Europeans. Um, but they arrived under very different circumstances where they had contracts and they were, it was a time limit. Um, they could work their way uh, out of the servitude that they were in. And then ultimately with the arrival of, of Africans uh, or the, the uh, forced arrival of Africans, that ended up, uh, that ended up creating a more uh, concrete delineation between people. And then any people arriving from Europe after that time were then they were ushered into the queue for which the Europeans were um, assigned. And that was the creation of, of race in the, in the new world. That, that leads me on to an, an interesting, really interesting thing you say in the book or, or your quote is that for many immigrants to the US, they, they didn't arrive as white or black. They, that's not how they conceived of themselves until they got to America. I wonder if you could explain a bit more about what you mean by that. If you're in Europe and you happen to be, um, you, if you happened to have been uh, Romanian or you were Ukrainian or you were um, Dutch, that's what you were. <laughs> and there was no, you, you, you one would um, interact with others on the basis of, of that ethnic and national recognition and identity. Only when you come to a place that has many different other um, peoples from all over the world, then do, is there a sense of having to um, adjust oneself to it. You know, when you think about human history, we, we now accept these things to be truisms. You know, we accept that the idea that, of course, there are black people and, of course, there are white people. And they're, you know, we, this is so obvious to us now because this is what we have known for the time that, you know, that, that we have been here, um, each of us alive now. But, you know, going back in, you know, from a historical perspective, you know, taking a long view, it has not really been that long when you think of all of human history that where people didn't think of themselves that way. The, the new world 
became an experiment in the confluence of humans from all over the world, which had not been possible before the, you know, the, the, uh, the, new, the, new, the new world or the Americas became um, a, uh, um, um, a landing place from pe- for people who otherwise would never, in, throughout most of human history, never would have interacted or never have had to live in the same space. These are experiments. You know, th- this is a project of experimentation. And, um, you know, in our global globalized world now, we take it as a given that, of course, we can go any place and we can, you know, be uh, in one continent and another continent within a day. But when you think about the long arc of, of human history, that had not been the case. So this is still rare, still relatively new. And there are not many, many examples, um, uh, you know, of large scale democracies that have had this combination of, you know, multi ethnic groups all living among themselves. So I, I just say that as a preface just to remind ourselves that this is still very new. Um, and so when anyone were, you know, once the once um, the caste system, uh, the hierarchy um, of the new world, then we're talking about um, the colonies, the American, what would be what would become the United States of America. Once that hierarchy was in place, any newcomer had to find out where did they fit in. And once they arrived, they discovered that they fit in and they were assigned a place based upon what they look like, based upon their heredity, based upon the manifest, the physical manifestation of their heredity. And that meant that people coming from Europe found that they were actually viewed as the exact same group once they got here. They were viewed as the same racial category. And so... Um, so that people from Denmark and people from um, from Romania and people from the Ukraine and people from uh, from uh, Germany and you know people from Belgium would have found themselves all in the, viewed as the same. They were all um, assigned to the same queue, whether they had things in common back home and in the in the, the mother countries or not. And the same went for people coming in from uh, from. Uh, from Africa and other parts of the world, they fa- it, it turned out that there there was a place for everyone, and the place was assigned a bo- before arrival because it had been had been determined before arrival what the hierarchy was going to be, and so that put people in contention um, automatically. It forced people to um, to choose sides in order to survive in a pre-existing hierarchy in their adopted land. And it's a human nature to to want to survive and to do well in their new land. And this is what they were forced to do. Over time, um, while the first immigrants might have found, found that they had to make an adjustment, this became the received wisdom that was passed down through the generations to the point to where um, now the idea of someone being white or black, um, of the focus on perhaps someone being Asian, these are things that are, are accepted uh, labels and delineations that we view as not anything even to think about, but they are labels that are the prime tool for uh, enforcing a caste system, enforcing a hierarchy, because those identifications have meaning in a, in a hierarchy such as uh, the one that was created in the United States back 400 years ago. One of the most interesting comparisons you make between Nazi Germany and America is is the way that the language of science was kind of weaponized to reinforce caste, especially this idea of purity versus pollution. And I just wondered if you could go into a bit more detail on that. Well, well, one of the things that that um, the, the the one of the parallels that I had not 
been aware of. I mean, this was the, the whole experience of working on this book was just a revelation on so many different levels. And I had not realized, nor would I ever have thought about the connection between you, the eugenics on both sides of the Atlantic and how how they were uh, interacting with one another, looking to each other. And this is well before the Third Reich. Um, this was during the, you know, from the late 19th century and in through World War One of uh, of a a pseudoscience to to build a justification for the hierarchy that had already been been established actually, but were still actually obviously being, um, but but was still brewing even more so in Germany and how they were interdependent and how they were encouraging of each other and there were uh, American eugenicists that actually went to uh, to uh, Germany during the Third Reich and were. Um, consulting with them and were, were received as, as dignitaries. So that there was this, there was this interconnectedness that was, was stunning to me and I had not been aware of it. And this is, this is why your question about how, um, you know, how were they different actually enforces the, uh, the tragedy of the, of caste itself, because the impulse to, the, the impulse to maintain the impulse to look for reasons to justify and rationalize were common among them all, even though they might have found different ways to do that. And so the finding, the, the, the idea that they found similar language and similar um, ways of, of uh, that they found kindred spirits among one another is, is terrifying and, and, and shocking. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Until we deal with and first know and then reckon with the history, these will still be with us. And, and so that's why I, I, am, I want so badly for people to know the history. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. To pick up on your point there about enforcing um, caste hierarchies, uh, there are a lot of personal and human stories you share in the book of people's experience of, of living within these systems. What are some of the ways that caste hierarchies have been policed and maintained and enforced across history? Well, uh, there was a, you know, there was, uh, because a, a higher, an artificial hierarchy is by definition arbitrary and in some ways goes against the, the, the will of people who do not wish to be um, constricted. They want to be free. They want to be themselves, um, whatever that might be. Um, the, the origins of policing uh, began with the time of enslavement. The origins of policing, um, a policing of the of the boundaries of caste, and in some ways ended up policing in other aspects of of uh, American culture. Began with the need to keep uh, Africans who had been enslaved in their place as people sought to run away. There were slave patrols that were created to to hunt them down if they sought to flee. Um, there was uh, the Fugitive Slave Act which then uh, meant that those in the North, the places that, the, that enslaved people might um, try to flee to, were then compelled or uh, made to uh, return them to uh, the people who claimed to own them. And so this idea of policing and surveilling and controlling and containing those who were assigned to the bottom is a long, um, is a, a very long uh, concept and uh, thread that runs throughout American history. Um, so much so that, in fact, um, a lot of those slave patrols and people might be deputized, ordinary people who were not themselves constables, but ordinary people were, who were in the dominant caste were expected to police and surveil and control and maintain the caste line. So this was something that this was an idea that ran through, was an accepted wisdom of how um, the hierarchy would be maintained. And this might have been without the word ever being used. I mean, the word caste was not being used, but this was a maintaining of boundaries and, and restrictions as to who could do what and who could be where and who was expected to be where. And so uh, that follows through to the current era, where, again, the words may not be used, but we have seen the videos um, that surface, you know, every other week um, that show ordinary people um, uh, surveilling uh, people who would be assigned or viewed as, as uh, the uh, subordinate caste in the United States, African-Americans, on a regular basis, you know, where um, there was there have been so many cases that it's hard to even know where which one to choose from. But there was one in which um, uh, uh a young woman, for example, was studying in her dorm at, at Yale, and uh, a, a, a woman of African descent was studying in her dorm at Yale, and I think she she took a break uh, and rested her head on her book, and someone came and, uh, you know, and, and accused her of, of trespassing, of not belonging there. Um, that was something that was an ordinary person. Um, policing the boundaries of who would be expected, where this is a person who would not be expected to be, in this person's mind, um, a, a legitimate 
worthy, you know, student, graduate student at Yale University. The police were called and she had to provide ID. They even questioned the ID that she did to them. And this was just one out of many, many, many examples, many examples. And of course, the most extreme examples end in uh, in brutality and, and sometimes people losing their lives as a result of the policing of these boundaries. Um, there is a case that got a lot of attention um, recently in uh, Central Park where um, a woman, um, a white woman, a woman who would be viewed as a dominant caste, um, called the police on a man because he had said to her that he that her dog was off leash. And she said she felt threatened by his saying that. He began to record it. And this became one of the big, uh, the, one of the, the, the more recognizable, it just captivated people because it was caught on video. And she's seen there... Um, you know, basically almost disregarding her, 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 her dog and calling the police on this man saying that she was threatened. The man was a bird, uh, a bird watcher who was out taking in um, Central Park. And these are the kind of things that can occur at any given moment in one's day. And this is the long thread of history that reasserts itself even in the current era. I, th- I think that is a crucial thing to say when, uh, when we're discussing your book, that this, of course, isn't just about history. It, it's very much how history has shaped the present day. And you also share some stories from your own experience of, of the US caste system. How have you seen it play out firsthand? Well, one of the things that I like to emphasize in this work is that it affects everyone uh, up and down the hierarchy, often in ways that, that people can't see. Um, uh, particularly if they are at a remove from this, if they don't have to engage with it on a daily basis, there may be ways that people are not even aware of how it's even affecting them. So this really is a disruption for, you know, how a system works and how economy works and how businesses can even, you know, actually are actually operating. All kinds of people are harmed by that, by this, not merely, not just the targets. And so in one of the cases that I make mention of, it's I, I was I was a reporter at the New York Times, I was a national correspondent at the New York Times, and I was I was do, doing this story. Uh, it was a, it was a, a feature story. It was um, something that I had um, reached out to all these people and they'd been happy to be interviewed. And I made an appointment with this one man to to interview him. And he was very excited to be interviewed by the New York Times. Um, and I when I but when I showed up uh, at his establishment where it was very it was empty, um, he actually wasn't there at the time. He was running late and I decided I would just wait. There was no problem with with waiting. There was no one else there other than um, than the uh, one other salesperson there. And she told me to wait there for him. And um, when the, so the door opened and a man came rushing in and I went up to him and I realized that, you know, that this was this was the man I was there to interview. Um, the, the, the person who had been there to help me earlier said, yes, this is him. She gestured to him. So I went up to him and uh, to introduce myself. And um, he as, as Isabel Wilkerson with The New York Times and he his his response was, I don't have time to talk with you. I'm waiting for I'm waiting for a very important interview, and um, I, I I said, well, I I think I might be the interview because I have an appointment with you. You said, no, 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 very important interview with the New York Times. Uh, no, no, very very important interview with the New York Times. He literally had not heard anything I said. He was responding to what he saw, 
And I said, but I think I'm your interview. I'm, I'm Isabel Wilkerson with the New York Times. And he said, well, how do I know that? How would I know that? <laughs> and I said, well, I made the appointment with you and no one else is here. And he said, well, what you have, do you have a business card? What do you have to, to prove this? And I said, well, I, I actually, it was the end of the day and I happened to have been out of business cards. So I said, I didn't have that. He said, well, do you have any ID on you? And I said, well, I do. I shouldn't have to show that to you. I mean, we should be, we should be in, in the interview right now. I mean, no one had come in, literally no one else had come in. And there was this, against all evidence to the contrary, he was refusing to believe that I was the person who was there to interview him. And I remember he was already late. So this has gone, gone into a point where this was well into the time that the appointment would have been starting anyway. And uh, he, he saw the, the uh, ID, but he said, well, this doesn't mean anything. I mean, this is just this is still not proof that you're with. You, do you have anything with The New York Times on it? And I happened not to have anything else. So I, he said, well, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Because I have, I have to get ready for this appointment. I have to get ready for this interview, and I left. I, that had never happened to me before, where I had been accused of impersonating myself. And so there are many, many ways that you could see this hurting people even beyond me. I mean, obviously for me, it was, I was, I was flummoxed and um, trying to make sense of it because it just was such a bizarre thing to have happened. But this is a person who missed out on being, I wrote the story and the story ran and it was fine. He didn't get in the story. So he didn't get in the story and whatever publicity or attention he might've wished to have gotten, he didn't get. Um, You know, you could say that it affects me and my ability to be able to do the work because I have to then assess what is it that happened? Why did he do this? And you go through all these questions. So it's a quietly destructive force. It's like the wind. People can't see it, but it's there nonetheless, and it, it can knock you down in, in ways and at moments when you never expect it. You don't, you know, one thing that is often said about um, people who are um, marginalized, they will often say, well, they're playing a particular card, and they're playing the race card, or the, I guess maybe there's a gender card. And I would say and wish to tell everyone that that is absolutely the last thing that anyone wants to do. People wake up every morning and hope that it will be a good day, that they will get the things done that they need to get done and enjoy doing it. They want all to go well and they want to be be happy and successful. Everybody wants that when they wake up in the morning. They don't look for these things to be happening to them. They do not want these things to be happening to them. That did not benefit me in any way. It just made me feel uh, marginalized, um, uh, you know, erased, isolated, and distant from him. Everyone lost. Everyone lost. There was no, there were no winners in that, and that's what I hope people will be able to see about the quietly destructive nature of caste and hierarchy in our lives. Um, it definitely feels like your book is part of a bigger debate that's going on at the moment about how societies, including Britain, including the U.S., come to terms with their past or acknowledge their past or um, face up to it. Essentially. Compared to, say, for example, Germany, which is one of your main comparisons, um, how do you think that America has done at confronting um, this aspect of its national history? Well, that was the primary reason that I included um, Germany uh, in this book. Um, And that is because um, it was a a short-lived but horrifying object lesson in in what can happen, the worst that can happen in hierarchy. And um, 
in the time that in the time since the you know terrifying 12 years of the third reich germany has been in the process of seeking to understand come to grips with um uh recognize uh and in many respects atone for what happened during that time and in th- throughout um you know th- there's a tremendous effort of 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 maintaining the memory of what happened with uh, while honoring those who suffered um and having a clear-eyed sense of what the history actually was how they got to that point and what can happen going forward um many of the as as you very well know many of the sites of of those horrors uh, are remained open for people to go and um confront those horrors directly themselves uh in the the capital there uh the those sites of the the Reich uh buildings have been turned into museums for people to come and to learn so that this can never happen again so that we can learn about what happens with the worst impulses of of hierarchy and um and hatreds and so i i i thought that it was a cautionary tale cautionary story cautionary lesson for everyone because of how they have been working toward um an understanding and atonement and i think that 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 is it's an ongoing effort i think on their part i think they would describe it as an ongoing effort um and and i think that it it offers lessons for everyone do you how do you think that america is currently um faring in in that sense well i mean it, it it's a it's a, again the the parallels and juxtapositions um uh are in some ways um you know fermenting even now. i mean we're seeing things occurring even now um there have has long been a question about what to do about um confederate monuments how to how how is it that that part of american history is remembered uh and uh and uh or and or honored and the part of what has been happening with the with the this awakening that is currently going on and this recognition this reckoning that that is happening right now is that people are once again looking at these monuments once again looking at how are we dealing with the history um part of the issue with all of this is that um is that there is not enough information not enough history uh full and um comprehensive history about what actually happened to begin with and so the way that history is taught the way that people what people do know about what happened during uh that era and before and after meaning the time from civil war the 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 decades leading up to the civil war and the aftermath of it there is not as much uh there's not as much uh awareness of what actually happened and so one of the goals of my work is to is to is to shed light on what actually happened in our country you know i wrote a previous book uh the warmth of the sons and it was about the um the the flight of of 6 million african americans who 
fled the, the Jim Crow South, defected the Jim Crow South, defected the caste system in order to find refuge in other parts of the country that were presumed and seen as being freer. And one of the things that I hear time and time again from people who read that book is they'll say, I had no idea. No matter their, um, where they happen to be, uh, their backgrounds, their, um, you know, their, their ethnicity, whatever it may be, people often say, I had no idea that this happened. And so part of the challenge right now is for people to actually have an idea, to begin to know and to understand and to see what actually happened in, in this country. Um, and I would say um, there as well, I, I would say that there is an awakening to the role of, of enslavement and, and the slave trade on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think that this is a, this is a great awakening that that's, there's a potential for it anyway, if people are open to it. And so I say all that um, as a preface to the discussion about what happens with these monuments, because Part of the problem is it is a lot of people really don't know truly what they represent toward um, uh, awakening and, and reconciliation on that score. Looking at all the history that you've delved into here, do you think that America's caste system can be or will be dismantled? That is a question, isn't it? Um, it takes a will. It takes uh, first a, a recognition that it exists at all which is the reason that I wrote the book. Um, It takes an open-hearted willingness to see the commonality of of all human beings and to see how um, how the price that we all pay for having a caste system. Those are the things that would have to happen before it could be dismantled. You know, one of the, you know, I did a tremendous amount of reading for this book and, um, you know, the, the great... Uh, Dalit leader, um, Dr. Ambedkar, you know, wrote uh, his his seminal work was titled The Annihilation of Caste. And so in the, you know, um, middle part of the, of the 20th century, he was speaking about the, um, this phenomenon, this, you know, this, um, this pox upon humanity uh, that divides people and he 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 spoke of the need to for it to be annihilated and here we are decades later and it is still it is still here despite legislation to the contrary despite legislation outlawing it um these these uh this history is long and this history is deep and there's no escaping the history and until we deal with and first know and then uh, and then reckon with the history, these will still be with us. These things will be with us until we reckon with the history. And and so that's why I I am I want so badly for people to know the history. That was Isabel Wilkerson. Her book, Cast the Lies That Divide Us, is on sale now, published by Alan Lane. You can read a version of this interview in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes features on the downfall of Anne Boleyn, the Mayflower, 1980s nuclear paranoia and medieval eels. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Wednesday when Simon Sharma will be speaking about the Romantics. Romantics.